Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Rocky Lotka. Rocky is an open source and distributed systems architect, author, and speaker. He's currently CTO at Cognizant Soft Vision and calls Eden Prairie, Minnesota home. Welcome, Rocky. Glad to be here. Yeah, so uh, before we sort of jump into the meat of things, would you... Give our listeners a little introduction to yourself, uh, you know, perhaps tell them how you got started in the industry. Sure. I got started, uh, I grew up in the middle of Minnesota, so surrounded by hundreds of acres of forest and uh, no real access to computers. This was back in the 70s and 80s. And, uh, uh, but I fell in love with the use of, uh, you know, of computers, what little I had access to. The uh, We started with a mainframe that we had a 110 dial-up modem with a rotary phone and uh, then got Apple integer computers and Apple II computers. And uh, But I, I think a lot of it is that, you know, even though I grew up in the country, we were always problem solving. We were, you know, there was, I get that both from my, from both parents, really. Um, you know, my dad bought Heathkit projects um you know like depth finders for for to find fish and we were always uh i don't know just solving problems mechanical or otherwise and uh you know software uses all those same skills and so that's how i got my start anyway okay so uh what uh, brought you to what you're doing these days well i followed largely i suppose a traditional or what is now traditional i got a computer science degree and uh didn't actually exercise computer science as much as went into uh, business software development, you know, which shouldn't discourage people from computer science. I don't mean to do that, but you know, so much, especially back then, so much of the focus in computer science was on how to design and build programming languages and how to uh, uh, build assemblers and how to interact with hardware in an optimal way. Very, very little, in fact, pretty much nothing that is at all relevant to business software development. But of course, the uh, job market largely focuses on business software development, not on building compilers. So, you know, <laughs> um, I think like most people, I ended up doing business software, which it's not like the computer science was not useful because it has been immensely useful, but. It's certainly not what I had in my head when I was going and, you know, taking all those classes in college. <laughs> you know, and of course now over the years, I've spent a lot of time interacting with uh, a lot of folks at Microsoft, you know, for 20, 30 years. And so I'm friends with people that either are or have been uh, authors of the the Visual Basic compiler and the C-sharp compiler. And yeah, I at one point uh, got to hang out with... Uh, a guy that uh, was at the time the architect for the Microfocus COBOL compiler. And uh, I, I was kind of chuckling because I'm like, really? Yeah, it's like he was a young guy. <laughs> and this was, uh, I want to say in 2005 or something. And he was a, you know, in his late 20s, I would say. And I'm like, wow, how did, how did a guy 
without gray hair become the architect of the COBOL compiler. <laughs> and and he's like, well, how many people in the planet get to be architects for a compiler, period? Mm. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, for him, this was like a dream job, right? <laughs> so what's it like? Uh, what's, C- what's CTO uh, of Cognizant SoftVision? What's that? What's that like from a day to day perspective? Yeah, well, I'm not entirely sure yet. <laughs> um, I, I spent the last uh, ten years being the CTO at a consulting company called Magenic, hmm. um, and we we grew to about 850 consultants, roughly. Um, and we were recently acquired by Cognizant Soft Vision, and uh, so definitely a lot of changes because you know. Cognizant is a 300,000 person global company and SoftVision is a subsidiary that's about 4,000 people. So that's not so intimidating. Uh, yeah, but I'm used to working for a company that yeah, has less than a thousand uh, consultants. And so it's definitely, uh, definitely a change. Okay. You know, uh, <laughs> but a good, I, I would say so far it's been good. It's been interesting. I, I've spent my entire career working directly working for small companies, but I've worked as a consultant for some very, very large companies. It's a little different to be directly employed by a very large company. But that said, you have a fair amount of experience in open source software as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, I've been uh, directly contributing to open source for 24 years, almost 25. It's been an interesting journey because if you... Uh, look back to the mid '90s when I got started. You know, open source as a concept was just starting to come into the public consciousness, and at that point in time, most things were called freeware or shareware, mm-hmm. uh, and, and those words still exist a little bit. But um, the the idea of open source and the idea of copyleft and GPL mm-hmm. was as much a joke at the time as it was <laughs> anything real. Um, you know, and uh, of course now it's not so much of a joke anymore, is it? Right? It's this is all very real and impacts uh, people from individuals. Like right now, uh, we're at least I'm recording some of this using Audacity, which is open source, and uh, you know, but all the way up to you know massive multi-million or multi-billion-dollar software projects that are based on open source software that somebody somewhere wrote and just contributed to the world. And that's pretty amazing to think about. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm on windows and I program with windows technology, but even 90% of the software I use is open source. I mean, the, the language is open source. The, the editor, uh, visual studio code is open source WSL, so like Linux distributions are open source. I mean, so much of the software that I use is open source. So I don't know. I'm I'm curious what the world would look like if open source hadn't become a thing. Would we still be stuck in the, in the 90s, or you know, would we have been able to progress to where we are now if open source hadn't been a thing, or would everybody be on AOL downloading wares? <laughs> it's hard to say because you know there, there's different. There's competition between companies that certainly drives a lot. And, you know, so today Apple, you know, spent uh, a bunch of time telling everybody what they're all about their, you know, new iOS and, and Mac and language enhancements and all sorts of cool stuff. You know, they're, they are 
very much the Microsoft of the nineties, right? They're very closed, um, very secretive and, uh, a lot, a lot like what Microsoft was in, in the mid nineties. And, and yet there's still a driving force for enhancement and progression in our industry, you know, because they're competing with open source, with Microsoft, with Google. I, I think you're right in some sense because open source, uh, allows people to take some really innovative ideas and run with them in a way that probably would never get funded by a corporate entity. Um, and, and sometimes those ideas are victorious on their own. Sometimes a company buys out the idea, you know, buys out the open source project. And sometimes, you know, the innovation is driven from proprietary companies. And so it's, I think it's a combination of all of these things. It seems like there's a, a big discussion about open source software, sustainability, corporate sponsorship, or you know how to make sure that these projects stay afloat, that the the maintainers, the contributors, are maintaining the the software, so to speak. That that there is a community around it. Has that changed much in decades? Uh, is that is that sustainability model changing? Is there a, a new horizon coming, or or like what what is the future of sustainable open source software? It is tough, and and it's a complicated topic. Although I don't think it should be complicated. Um, yeah, and, and you're right. Just in the last week or so, there's there's uh, been a lot of activity because of a blog post and some tweets around it that have generated a lot of great conversation um, about a month ago. Well, actually a little more, I guess two or three months ago, I published something for Forbes that was along a similar line, uh, you know, responsible use of open source and what, what that should mean, <laughs> which isn't what it really means. Right. But what it should mean in my view is that uh, there's an unwritten contract with open source and that if you use open source, you are beholden to the same uh, community. Um, your, your fate becomes tied to the creators of open source. And this is especially true if you're relying on open source frameworks or open source tools or open source operating systems to do your um, enterprise work. It's not quite so true if, if you use a, an open source tool to create a graphic and once you're done, now you've got the graphic uh, you know, and the tool goes away, eh, it might not be the end of the world. But if you're using something like uh, my CSLA.net to build your enterprise software um, and CSLA goes away, then you can't maintain your software anymore. Uh, well, I mean, you can because it's open source, but now now you have assumed the ownership of, <laughs> of the entire thing. And, um, that's true for, you know, relational database engines and operating, right? I mean, all these things that go very, very deep and, you know, it's like, well, open source is better because I have the source. I'm like, well, that's true only to the extent that you can employ people that can actually maintain the source. And most companies that use, uh, let's say an open source database are users. They're not, you know, their developers are not. <laughs> database architects the responsible participation in the ecosystem is key and that might be contributing back it might be just contributing via money those are all good but if you don't contribute at all where it gets complicated is i'm not necessarily talking about you as a developer 
Um, I'm more talking about you as, as a business, right? Because most of us work for a company and the company pays us to write something. Then we choose to use an open source framework or an open source tool. But the burden is more on my employer than it is on me. And so really, I need to make sure that my employer understands that we are using this open source thing and that in order for it to have longevity, you know, because enterprise software, you know, we're talking a 10 to 20 year support horizon, right? For most of it. And so is this framework going to exist for the next 15 to 20 years? Mm -hmm. The answer is a shrug. who (laughs) Who knows, right? And, and so I'm, I'm writing a, you know, a $10 million piece of software on top of this thing. Um, maybe my employer ought to contribute to in some way to make, uh, make it viable for that open source framework to exist for the next 15 to 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. How, how much investment is required by the community to prevent the dome from collapsing and everything falling to the ground in a, in a mash of, of software projects that can no longer work. Well, and I mean, a, a key example of that is that JavaScript was it LPAD. This was years ago. Um, but it was uh, an NPM package uh, that's at the base of an awful lot of the web. And, um, the developer got frustrated and yanked it. And it was a disaster. It was in the news. I mean, it was it was like the mainstream news. This was big, right? And uh, part of the fault was certainly on on the package manager for actually even allowing the concept of yanking a package. But uh, it still goes to show the the vulnerability that pretty much the entire industry. Um, has at this point to major open source projects or, or even really important minor ones um, going away. So what do we, I mean, obviously if you're, if you're pulling in something that's closed source uh, that's costing the business money, it's a lot easier for the business to be aware of that because like me as a developer, I'm not going to be paying (laughs) the, the licensing fee, right? I'm going to have to go get someone to go hand handle that. And then I think that also allows for the business to sort of be a little bit more involved and cognizant of when we're pulling in those dependencies. But pulling in an open source package is just super simple from a developer's perspective. So like that, that we can add in that dependency at almost no cost, but there's a, a hidden burden from a developer perspective. What really ought I to be bringing back to the business? And, um, you know, how do we how does that relationship work on a really good level? You're right about proprietary software in that companies, uh, you know, for one thing, yeah, you're right. The, the developer doesn't pay for it. The company does, which is good, right? Because it's the, now it becomes the company's choice. And a company that um, has any experience in this will do some level of a vendor assessment, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, not just assessing does the product do what I need it to do, but also they'll look at the um, at the company that provides that product and look at its financial health and, and history and make an assessment and say, oh yeah, you know, this, they, they've been like Microsoft seems pretty safe. Right. <laughs> uh, whereas, uh, you know, Bob's basement software, eh, maybe we need to, you know, <laughs> a little more scrutiny open source. But if you step back just a little bit, that product selection process and vendor selection process applies 
equally as much to open source. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just like you said, there's not the forcer of having to go through a purchasing process. So um, you, you or I just open up NuGet or NPM and woohoo, off we go. All right. But yeah, as, as a, as a responsible developer, you should be going to your, um, you know, team lead and, and they should, you know, escalate it up the chain or however your organization is structured. And there should be a conscious choice to say, Hey, I'm going to use this, uh, web grid or, uh, yeah, whatever it might be that you're using. Um, but I'll pick that one as a great example because back in the, uh, the VB days. So this would, you know, late nineties. Um, I worked with a company, uh, as a consultant, but they had acquired a grid control and they used it everywhere in hundreds of forms, hundreds of pages. And that was in VB five and the grid control vendor didn't make enough money to justify upgrading it to work in VB (laughs) six. And so this poor company was stuck. They had, they had no migration path off from VB five. And, uh, I, I actually don't know eventually what happened. Um, I was brought in to help do an assessment and try to come up with a plan. And the assessment slash plan was basically to find a VB six grid that was somewhat similar. Um, there wasn't one exactly the same. And then rework several hundred pages with complicated business logic. Yeah, it was horrible. It was horrible. Um, and this wasn't even open source. This was a commercial package, right? Um, but it's the same vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Had it been open source, they maybe could have forked the source code and maybe looked it up that upgrade themselves, perhaps, or something like that. So, John, it gets even better because they actually did. A, a decent vendor assessment realized the vendor was not a big company and they had paid for the company to put the software in escrow. So they had access to the source code. Nice. But <laughs> they didn't have the money or resources to rewrite the control from the VB5 control model to the VB6 control model. They were in the same boat as their vendor, right? It would have costed several million dollars to get the grid control working in the new in the new world. You had mentioned CSLA, and I, I had some experience with CSLA ten or fifteen years ago. Is that is that still the the same framework we're speaking of? I'm, I'm assuming there's been some major upgrades in the last few years. <laughs> there, there definitely have, um, and and yes, it's still got the uh, the clunky uh, you know '90s era acronym based name, but. Um, but yeah, it, it, uh, you know, depending on when you used it, you know, cause it existed in com before .NET and then I rewrote it, uh, for .NET and the initial, but both the initial com version and the .NET version were somewhat of a framework and somewhat of a set of guidelines, right? It was kind of a combination. Um, and people used it as a framework, even though that wasn't a hundred percent my intent, But, uh, so somewhere around 2004, 2005, I just, I embraced the idea that everybody's using it as a framework. So let's actually make it a framework. And, um, that opened up a lot of doors. So a lot of people encountered it in the early two thousands when it was uh, a nice basis on which to build your own stuff. 
And uh, starting in 2005, um, a lot of the the things that I had left for people to make choices or left for people to customize, I'm like, no, no, no. If it's going to be a framework, I'll be prescriptive. <laughs> and so, you know, you roll forward from that point through to today. And um, so some of the downsides are that it's less flexible, but a lot of the upsides are that it's a lot easier and a lot more powerful uh, you know, to use because I've already, and I say I, but I mean, there's like 80 some people that have contributed over this time frame. You know, so I should say we have, you know, really made some uh, choices about how we think things should work and, and then created implementations or, or patterns that, you know, make that easy. So it's, it's been a fun journey. Yeah. For, for maybe for those that may not be as familiar with CSLA, can you give just a, a brief overview? Yeah. CSLA is an attempt to provide a framework that supports business logic as a first class citizen. So there's a lot of UI frameworks, um, you know, Angular, React, uh, WPF, you know, UWP, I don't know, there's tons and tons of them, right? And there's a lot of data access frameworks, uh, you know, um, Entity Framework and Dapper and JDBC and ODBC and yeah, just tons and tons, you know, Hibernate and N-Hibernate. Um, but there are very few frameworks that exist in, in between the two to help you, con, you know, reliably and repeatably, uh, build and maintain your business logic. And in my view, personally, software, business software is a three-legged stool. You have to have a great user experience. You have to have a solid data story and you got to have a great story around business logic because you know, that's just as important as the other two. So CSLA was, is a direct opposite of that, a direct reaction. It says, Hey, let's, let's actually formalize the idea of business logic, create a business logic. Well, one or more business logic libraries that are uh, logically and hopefully physically separated from the UI and from any sort of data access. So that as the UI technologies change over time, or as you decide to move from Entity Framework uh, 5 to Entity Framework Core and realize that you're going to have to rewrite your whole data access layer, um, that you don't have to rewrite your whole business logic just, be just because of a tech change. So is it a, um, does, it, does it have any of the popular um, UI separation techniques that are, that are around today, like any of the MV star patterns or CQRS or anything like that? How does, it, how does it keep the business clean and separate from whatever UI somebody might be using? Well, I kind of stumbled into what, what ultimately became called MVVM. For me, part of the fun of watching this all unfold over time is that I've been doing this for long enough that I've seen some of my choices become design patterns. And so CSLA is based around the idea of creating domain objects, you know, classes that, that encapsulate your, uh, the shape of your data and also the business rules that apply to that data. MVVM is kind of like that, sort of. And I was able to rely heavily on Microsoft's continued focus on data binding that has existed since, well, 1993, um, if not earlier. The philosophy basically is that you 
use uh, domain-driven design, object-oriented design to come up with a domain model that meets your uh, use case or user scenario. You implement it using CSLA so that your business logic is all set up as a set of rules that trigger when they're supposed to and so on and so forth. And then you're able to bind that domain object or set of domain objects to your UI using very, you know, whatever flavor of data binding is appropriate for your UI framework. So it's not exactly MVVM, but it's not entirely unlike MVVM either. Looking at the uh, the updated documentation for CSLA as well, it looks like supported platforms for Docker and Kubernetes, WebAssembly via ASP.NET Blazor and the Uno platform, Windows, Mac, Linux, .NET Core, Razor Pages, MVC. I mean, it seems like every technology that uh, a, a developer may have some knowledge of or experience with is listed here in the supported platforms, uh, as well as important links uh, right here on the main page. Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't want to take too much credit because uh, I, I an awful lot of it is the .NET paves the way, and uh, and then you know we follow, uh, which is not to say that it's free, right? And in, in that um, you know, supporting all of these different platforms definitely requires some work within CSLA too. But uh, Microsoft and and the Mono project. Uh, you know, Xamarin have done a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, and then we come along and, and smooth it over. But that is one of the value propositions of CSLA is that if you have used CSLA to write your business layer, we do our best to abstract any differences between the runtimes that where .NET exists. And uh, so it's, it is really, really cool because if you've got a, uh, let's say an app server that's running in .NET uh, framework on Windows, and you're like, oh man, I could save you know a couple cents an hour running on a on a Linux server in Azure, and you know, but I'm running a hundred app servers twenty four by seven. That adds up to real money, right? Um, yeah, to a large degree, you can recompile that uh, you know app server that .NET code into .NET 5, .NET 6, and uh, compile it for Linux, and it'll just keep working because CSLA will mitigate you know, some of the differences and so forth. The idea of running things in containers um, and, and running it either in Kubernetes or, or an orchestrator that's just built into Azure or AWS, um, you know, and, and then making CSLA really work well in those spaces, that, well, I think that's going to become the dominant future for server-side computing. I'm always amazed at companies and organizations that have chosen Windows app services on Azure when we can we can choose to run on a, a Linux app service plan for uh, twice the performance at half the cost. So, so are we looking is is CSLA then one of these modern cloud native type applications or what is the path forward there? When I think about cloud native, uh, in particular, I think a lot about uh, if you go to a site called 12factor.net, so the digit 12factor.net, um, it's a, a website where they've collected a set of uh, design patterns for being cloud native. And it's fantastic. So that's, that's kind of like the becoming, I believe, industry-wide the gold standard for if you're going to say you're cloud native, that means that you're adhering to 
some subset or, or ideally all 12 of those factors. And so, yeah, CSLA over the last several years has evolved in key ways to support some of the, it, it already did some of the factors <laughs> and, and uh, you know, others not so well. And, uh, and if you look at the progression of, of .NET from .NET Framework into .NET Core into .NET 5, um, it has followed that same progression. Not surprisingly, uh, the, the folks at Microsoft are going, oh, wow, these are great ideas that really do work. And so uh, if you take like the, uh, the configuration subsystem in .NET and the way it works today versus the way it worked uh, in, you know, with config files and everything, that, that change is uh, 100% around the, uh, the configuration pattern that is in the 12-factor document. And so CSLA also, of course, had to change its configuration pattern uh, to fit the ideas that make it work really well in cloud native. And uh, time well spent, <laughs> you know, I mean, because it, it opens up these doors for um, not just scaling or, or cost reduction, but for a whole new and way better uh, developer and ops uh, you know, cycle the DevOps process. Um, Twelve factor cloud native makes that almost infinitely easier in most regards. Now, before we started recording, you said something about a connection between cloud native and Blazor, right? I did. Yeah, Blazor is something I am very interested in. I've been well, except for work. I've been, I've been programming in that exclusively for the past couple of years. Um, so what, what is that connection? What's uh, fill me in? <laughs> well, I think, you know, so cloud native is all backend server side, right? Containers and blazer sits on top of WebAssembly, which is, uh, literally sits next to JavaScript in the browser. And instead of writing JavaScript, you can write WebAssembly, which of course you and I hopefully never will do. We'll have a compiler yeah, we'll, we'll write C, C++, Rust, C Sharp, and let the compiler compile it to assembly. But nonetheless, these compilers, um, all the ones I just listed, compile to WebAssembly. So you're able to run native code in any modern browser. And so on one hand, they, these things don't look alike because it's a you know client-side thing versus a server-side thing. But where they are alike is that if you are writing cloud-native container-based server software, you really don't care about the operating system. You really, really don't, because that's part of the 12-factor model is you don't rely on the OS. And if you're writing your client software to run in WebAssembly, like in Blazor, you really don't care about the client operating system or even the browser, right? Any modern browser, they're all they all work fundamentally the same. And this stuff works on Android and Windows and Mac. So I've got this uh, vision that I, I suspect is a very likely true vision for the not distant future that most of us will write most of our server software to run in containers and we'll write most of our client software to run in WebAssembly. And we won't care as developers. We, it, it's immaterial whether our users are on a Windows machine or a Mac or a Linux desktop or a, a tablet, right? It's, it's doesn't matter a whole lot. 
And similarly on the server, once you write cloud native software, you don't really care if your container is a Windows container or a Linux container, um, or there, there's people working on WebAssembly containers. So maybe your backend starts running in WebAssembly too. Um, there's, there's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it starts to tickle the mind a little bit, right? It's like, oh, I, I'm just, I, I develop stuff in C sharp. I compile it into a platform neutral environment that ends up being compiled for Linux, compiled for WebAssembly, compiled for Windows. Um, and, and I'm happy everywhere. Well, and I, f- I feel like we're actually, uh, that last part is actually kind of close because I, I think I saw that somebody got Node running in WebAssembly in a browser. So they were actually serving the, the website that they were working on from within the browser, hosting it up to the browser so, so that they could see the site they were working on, which oh is a bit, it's a bit tangled. <laughs> but <laughs> if you could, if you could get things like, I don't know, I guess they'd have to open up special ports or something. But if you could get things like Docker and Kubernetes running from a WebAssembly base, then you know, really, yeah, everything could compile to WebAssembly and then just go, and then it would just be a matter of optimizing the WebAssembly interpreter. Yeah, except it's not an interpreter. Um, Web WebAssembly um, JIT compiles and runs native, so it's yeah. the 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 original prototypes for WebAssembly were interpreted, but um, WebAssembly today um, takes your binary uh, bytecode and compiles it native. So whatever machine, whatever device it's running on, when it's actually executing, it's native code. Okay, fantastic. I figured they were still doing the um, doing the interpretation because uh, they're still there's still some performance degradation between like um, certain cases for, um, or at least there was a couple of years ago, maybe, maybe it's all changed, but you know, for like uh, if you were doing um, heavy computation, you could still do it faster with uh, plain old JavaScript than you could with like blazer and, and WebAssembly. Maybe the hangup was in blazer, not in WebAssembly. Yeah. The, the heavy computation is probably not true anymore because of the compilation, but where blazer um, and, and pretty much all of the frame, UI frameworks that exist across any language, WebAssembly currently doesn't directly talk to the DOM. And so you have to use JavaScript as an intermediary to go between the, your code and the DOM. And so there's a, there's a, a little you know uh, overhead that goes there. And hopefully at some point, you know, a future version of WebAssembly will just let, let us directly talk to the DOM and uh, that that should clinch it, right? But um, in the meantime, we are in this kind of interesting world. Are there any resources uh, that you can direct our listeners to uh, for folks who maybe are looking to get into CSLA or uh, and and see if that's something they want to use and how how to kind of get that going, or maybe just trying to deal with open source? CSLA is on GitHub. Uh, the so you can just search for it there, but the easiest way is to go to cslanet.com. Uh, that's the, the homepage for it. Um, yeah, in terms of just getting into open source, that that's an interesting interesting one. Yeah, there's a a lot of open source projects. In fact, I would say most are interested in people contributing. Yeah, of course, that might sound intimidating, but um, getting a, uh, a high quality bug report is like gold. 
trust me. (laughs) (laughs) Getting a one-liner, this doesn't work. Now that happens all the time, but it's not, yeah, that's not useful. But, um, but yeah, actually having a, uh, somebody take the time to document what, what they were doing and what failed and what, how it failed. Um, that is a phenomenal contribution all by itself. Um, you know, only, only one upped by people that actually dig into the code, um, and, and come back and go, <laughs> Hey, I think if you change this, this code, in, in a little, you know, to this other code, this this might work. And sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're wrong. But just that amount of of uh, troubleshooting, and then you get into um, folks that contribute docs um, or samples. Again, invaluable. And, and it's the it is the rare. Like I said, there's only been, or, or it depends on how you look at it, eighty some people that have contributed to CSLA that have you know commits in in the code base. Right. Some of those are small. Um, and some of them are, uh, like people that completely rewrote the serialization or completely, um, uh, replaced the largest chunks of reflection with link expressions, you know, just massive, massive amounts of work. Um, you know, Johnny Beckham from Norway, uh, took the basic rules engine and enhanced the heck out of it because his, the the org company he was working for had very sophisticated business rules and um and they were committed to using CSLA so they kept extending the rules engine but that's not the bar and i think that's kind of the key right is that yeah if you're in that spot that is unbelievably awesome but if if all you can do um, you know, is file high quality bug reports or, you know, some troubleshooting outcomes or, uh, or get your employer to, uh, use GitHub sponsors or Patreon or whatever, um, you know, to help, uh, have recurring, you know, have recurring funds, um, or look at, at different software projects, open source projects have different funding. Like I've mostly over the years, I've funded mine through the sale of books and, and videos, and, you know, but other organizations have support contracts or rely heavily on consulting. And so, you know, looking at the business model that's behind an open source project and trying to engage with it is probably the best way to support that project. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? Patience, I think, is probably the key. I count myself fortunate because I get to do what I love, right? I, I love software development. I love design. I love programming. Um, and then so that to me, this is all awesome. Sometimes it's actually work, even though I love it, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm, I'm stuck building this thing on a technology that I, you know, is, is already obsolete. And, but there's the, the point, what I mean by patience is that, um, sometimes it's worth sticking around for a period of time and saying, you know, maybe the tech isn't as, as uh, trendy as possible or whatever it might be, but there's a lot to be learned about the software architecture or the way that the software and the business interact. Most software projects don't stand in isolation. We're, we're writing the software, but somebody else is retraining an entire you know thousand person workforce and maybe buying you know multi-millions of dollars worth of new um, machines on the shop floor or right we don't know um but you could know 
And uh, that, that's where I'm getting at is that being patient, keeping your eyes open and uh, being focused on learning, not just new software tricks, but how software um, applies to your end user. That's the road to becoming an architect uh, or a senior developer or whatever. But I mean, that's right. It's the road to progression in our industry. So uh, where can our listeners go um, to sort of follow you and keep up with what you're working on? Mostly I hang out on Twitter. Uh, so I'm Rocky Latka on Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and I, I check that pretty often, but I don't, I'm not a huge poster uh, in that space. And so, uh, but uh, you can go to latka.net. That has all my contact information um, and, and links to my blog. I, I'm a, I know blogging is apparently outdated, but I still do quite a bit of it. Um, and so, yeah, between my blog and Twitter, that's pretty much where you can find me. Well, all right, Rocky, really appreciate you uh, taking time to speak with us today. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Rockford Latka. Rocky is an open source and distributed systems architect, author, and speaker. He's currently CTO at Cognizant Soft Vision and calls Eden Prairie, Minnesota home. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Ah!